Again, you heard me talk about this on last week's episode of the podcast, but the Velo News Gravel issue, the Gravel edition of Velo News Print Magazine is on newsstands now. Great photo of Colin Strickland on the cover, and inside we have lots of features training stories, gear stories, all about gravel racing and other off-road racing modalities. Uh, You heard me talk about our uh, first-person piece with Ashton Lambie. There is the feature story on the female American mountain bikers and their push for the Olympics. Uh, And then we have the cover man himself, Colin Strickland, winner of the Dirty Kanza. Um, myself and Brad Kaminsky, the photo editor of Velo News, went and spent a few days with Colin in his hometown, Boston, Texas, earlier this year, and got a sense for who Colin is, both as a cyclist but a guy off the bike. And as it turns out, Colin is unlike your standard pro cyclist who trains, puts their legs up, rests and recovers. We found Colin to be a very interesting and engaging guy who is always tinkering on about 300 projects at once, be it a motorcycle repair or like putting together this antique trailer in his backyard and this constant tinkering um, has helped push him into strange new areas of pro cycling on the gravel circuit. So again, it's the gravel issue of Velo News on newsstands now and Colin Strickland on the cover. Pick up your copy now. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast, coming to you a little later this week because of the holiday. Fred Dreyer here. It is Tuesday. I'm a little under the weather, so if you hear me sniffling and snorting in the background, uh, I hope it's not coronavirus, not to joke. I think it's probably um, Dos Equis virus, maybe Tecate virus. Uh, some other Mexican beer that I was drinking that maybe gave me a little bit of a headache. Uh, we have a great episode for you today. Later in the show, we're going to catch up with Ian Boswell uh, to talk about gravel racing. You may have read on the site that Ian is going to be uh, attending a lot of gravel races this year. Um, as it turns out, yes, he will be doing that. He will be racing. But Ian, uh, unlike some of the other roadies we've written about going to gravel, uh, Ian is retired. He is very open and honest about that. He is a retired cyclist. He is working with the brand Wahoo, and he is going to these races and participating in them. But he actually has a day job, so he considers himself a retired cyclist. We're going to talk all about that with Ian Boswell. Um, but before we get to Ian, we need to talk about a very, very important bicycle race. One of the biggest bicycle races on the planet that may have flown under your radar. That is the Tour Columbia 2.1, which wrapped up this past week. Now, it may have flown under your radar because it wasn't on NBC Sports or Fubo or Flow Bikes, any of the traditional streaming services we have. It was broadcast, I think, on ESPN's app. It was very hard for Americans to see it. Um, But that shouldn't take away from the significance of this race. Um, Don't underestimate it when I say this uh, was the biggest bicycle race in the Western Hemisphere, hands down, due to the riders who showed up, the size of the crowds, the amount of media there was there, the just amount of attention that it got. And we're going to get a sense of that from a very special guest on today's podcast. It is our uh, longtime contributor, Rebecca Reza. Rebecca was at the Tour Columbia 2.1, witnessing the sights, talking to the athletes, and getting a sense for this. Uh, Rebecca, welcome to the Villainies Podcast. 
Thanks, Fred. Thank you very much. It's glad to, I'm glad to be back home and to be on the podcast. So thanks for the invite. I'm, I'm glad to see that you made it safely back home. <laughs> I was following you on your Instagram and your social media, and there were definitely images and videos that it was like, oh my gosh, there's so many people. What is What has Rebecca gotten herself into here at the Tour Columbia 2.1? So Rebecca, you were at this race last year. You attended yes. the race this year. I mean, set the scene. What can you say for the listeners about the size, the scope, the number of people that were out there. How would you describe the Tour Columbia 2.1 2020? So last season, we the race was in Antioquia. So it was based in Medellin. We were uh, in Rio Negro, which is about 45 minutes outside of Medellin. So the numbers last year, they told me, they gave me a rough number estimation of 7 million people altogether throughout the week, which if you compare that to Tour California – it's double, almost more than double what California ever saw in, in that race, which I, you and I have been to California many times. So, uh, when I saw the crowd, the crowds at the podium in Medellin, I said, I'm, this is huge. It's like Tour de France huge. Um, but this time we're going to Boyacá. We were in Nairo's land, you know, actually Nairo Quintana helped, you know, figure out the routes. And it was such an unfortunate thing that he wasn't there to race them. But he did have a big hand in setting up the race routes this year. And so we figured, okay, we're not going to be in a big city. We're, we're going to be in Boyacá, we're going to be in Paipa, in Duyatama, in Tunya, and all these smaller towns in Boyacá. But that did not make any bit of difference we were in one day that stage five and stage six started stage five ended in bernal's hometown so if you can imagine that the crowd the it was it was just as big as medellin if not bigger so it was pretty crazy you did some great reporting around this um first of all about how the teams dealt with the size of the crowds and even the media requests there was something like 320 uh media credentials which again um, that is enormous. When we go to like the tour of Utah or the tour of California, sometimes you can fit the entire press corps in like a car or like a couple cars. <laughs> and then you have at the tour of Columbia, 320 credentialed journalists. Um, you showed me a photo of one of the, um, press paddocks. It had barbed wire around it to keep people from like jumping in. Um, there are these stories of the teams having to employ like multiple bodyguards to usher the riders from one spot to the next. Um, set the scene for us in the team presentation. This is where all the stars of the sport, they're coming into this big stadium to greet the crowd, to answer some questions. Um, what was that look and feel like? So this year was a little bit different because of the crowds. Uh, the media was – we were kind of corralled like cattle into the mix zone. And the for this team presentation, it was held in a soccer stadium there in Tunia, which held about 21,000. They had probably around 15,000 people come out, which still a lot of people. Uh, the, the riders would come in. They would come through the mix zone. And it was just like, you know, uh, a feeding time for, for the media, you know, just trying to get as much as we could from the different stars that were there and there were plenty of stars in you know present to get that from and then they would kind of parade around the stadium get on stage do the big hoopla the big presentation and and then sit down as all the teams which last year the media could kind of mingle in and, and move around a little bit whereas this year we were kind of just in the mix zone kind of corralled like that like we were so that it was a little bit more orderly but still a huge crowd, huge presence, a big, you know, boom, big, nice way to, to kick off the fiestas for the week. And it sounds like uh, media access was greatly diminished this year because of the interest. So you have Igan Bernal, the Tour de France winner, Richard, Richard Carapaz, Giro winner. You have Rigoberto Uran, 
um, Sergio Higuita, some of these big stars, Danny Martinez, these big stars of Colombian cycling. And in last year, it sounds like, you know, you were able to get some time with these guys and have <clears throat> moments to approach them. But it sounds like this year, these guys were in such high demand with the crowds, with media, that they were kind of ushered, they were whisked away from one place to the next, right? It was a lot more controlled, a lot more uh, restricted this year. The the team hotel, the world team, the world tour teams typically stay in the same hotel. Last year, we could go in and around and mingle with everyone. This year, it was like a military fortress. You had to basically get signed in with you know when you drove into the car it was a gated uh area with the hotel um and access to the athletes interview time was very very hard to come by so we were very happy very lucky that we were able to get time with udon and with Carapaz, um which you, we our readers will see uh coming soon but um yeah it was it was very hard very hard almost impossible to talk to bernal you know if i could get a quote you know before or after a race it was a big deal <laughs> you know he just was just surrounded but with the the multi the multitude of national and local press the radio the number of radio stations in colombia i mean radio is huge in latin america and so the the amount of radio media you know they would just they would just hoard bernal like crazy so it was hard it was tough but it was it was a lot of fun <laughs> and what can you say about um the the elite riders and like what did this race mean to the elite riders, the Carapaz and Bernal and these big stars of European cycling racing back home in their country. Um, what were the stakes for them and what did this race really mean for them? You know, comparing to I, – I like to think back. Uh, the first race that I went to, the Tour of California, was, it was in February at that time. And I remember, you know, Carlos Sastre, you know, coming back and racing. And he was always at the back of the peloton. You know, you'd see like these big names, you know, um, uh, coming to race California. But it was kind of – they were just chill. They, were, they weren't they were really racing. It was just, okay, let's get the legs moving. Let's kind of get a few efforts in. This is completely different. You know, the Colombians, they wanted to put on a show for their for their fans, for their home. All of their families were there. I met, you know, I, I got to interview and talk to Danny Martinez's family and parents, uh, especially there on the last stage. Bernal's family was there. Um, Milano's family was there. So it was a family affair. They wanted to do well in front of their family and give back to the fans that give so much to them throughout the season. So they, they came to race, and it could have been the middle of July you know, for all we knew, because they were, they were, you know, really, really racing and, and putting all, all of their hearts into the race. So it was really cool to see. Yeah. The scene that stands out <laughs> to me is this final stage, mountain stage, summit finish to El Once de Alto de Verón. Verón. I, Verón, yeah. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> and the front group has, you know, Sergio Higuita, Danny Martinez, uh, and Egan Bernal is in there. And, Richard Carapaz gets on the front and just starts tapping out this really hard tempo to try and set it up for Bernal. And in that moment, you can tell these guys really take this seriously. As hard as Carapaz, you know, the, the Giro winner, is is on the front working for his teammate. Um, and Bernal is struggling. And these guys, you know, the tempo is getting faster and faster and faster. And the local riders are trying to hang on. And to me, that really encapsulated it because, like you said, Look, we all went to the Tour of California back when it was in February. And I remember 
uh, one year. It was like the the night before the final stage, and all the press corps were hanging out in the bar, and the like. We saw like Fabian Cancellara like going out for drinks that night, and yeah. you know the Euro- the Europeans would come over, and and it was a good early season aperitivo, but they weren't like really wanting to win. The Americans took it seriously, and the Mer- American teams took it very seriously. But uh, the Euros and the World Tour teams, it was, it was like, let's get some racing in our legs. And that scene on that final stage at Columbia was like, oh, my gosh, they, this isn't just like, let's get some hard efforts in our legs. Let's drop people and like really try and win this thing. And I don't know, that, that will always stand out to me as just a really impressive scene of how seriously these guys took the race. I mean, when they, when Sergio Higuita and Danny crossed the line, they completely collapsed. You know, they put everything in there. And we were above 10,000 feet. I mean, it was 3,200 meters, something like that. Uh, it, it was thin air. I mean, it was a tough climb for this early in the season. And the race organi- organization had told me that they had actually wanted to include some tougher climbs with it. The UCI was like, no, it's too early in the season. Um, and so they had to kind of back off it a little bit. But still, I mean, that altitude and, and that those, efforts i mean it was amazing to watch and the crowd absolutely just went nuts so rebecca with this race you know the 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 caliber of the field the fact that there are these huge stars here the fact that it's a really tough course and really dynamic racing it did bum me out that finding a live stream of this thing was so difficult in in the united states and it sounds like the race had a broadcast agreement with espn deportes and it had you know it was broadcast on the app and if you had this you know, if you had a subscription, you could search around and find it. Um, but, th- you know, in thinking about it after the race ended, I was like, God, it's so obvious this is the biggest race in the Western Hemisphere now. I mean, there's, you know, we've been to Tour Utah. Mm-hmm. Like, this this is way bigger than Tour Utah. This is way bigger than Tour California, many editions, even even some of the World Tour editions. Um, bigger than Dirty Kansas, bigger than, you know, U.S. Pro, like by a lot, by orders of magnitude. And, and I just wonder, you know, if you had a chance to talk to – race management or the federation about do they have plans to try and appeal to american viewers make themselves bigger in the united states i mean we have this big sponsorship market with these big bike companies here i would assume that um in colombia they might look at the lay of the land and say we're so much bigger than any bike event in the western hemisphere maybe we should try and make ourselves more appealing uh to the american market so they have a contract, ESPN um, Espanol, ESPN Bike is what they're officially called. They they have a contract through, running through next year, and their live stream, unfortunately, is only available in Latin America, so Mexico and further on down. Uh, so uh, the USA and Europe, Australia, we all kind of missed out. And so I talked to the Federation uh, president about that, as well as the Ministry of Sports and some of the team directors. So the the consensus was is definitely they they know that they need to look at it and reevaluate and see what they can do to change it the teams um, were very frustrated about that I talked to the sports director for team Medellin Jose Julian Velasquez team Medellin was the number one UCI American tour team last year continental um, level and they too they told me you know most of our followers on social media come from the United States and they are not able to follow the race and we have one of the biggest fields the most you know the high highest level field in anywhere in the world right now racing and only a third of the world can watch it there's a problem with that you know we want our sponsors to be seen and teams like nova nordis teams like rally you know uh cycling 
they had huge sponsors and they had a huge like turnout, a huge response in Latin America. Imagine what that could have been for the race if it was worldwide, you know. And so it's something definitely that hopefully we can see change sooner than later. Um, but something that it was really unfortunate that the rest of the world couldn't enjoy the show that these guys were putting on. Some of the other thoughts that came to me as I was watching this final stage was the um, well, first of all, the the power of this race and the power of the broadcast in um, you know just spreading cycling across Colombia into furthering the stoke of young Colombian cyclists and getting more kids into the sport, but then also the power of um, identifying talent. So one thing that we loved about the old Tour of California was the fact that these Conti teams would get a chance to race um, the World Tour teams. And every couple years, there'd be some Conti guy or Devo rider who would have a great breakaway or almost win a stage or pop a really good result. And because they did that at the Tour of California and there were World Tour teams there, they could punch their ticket to the World Tour or get identified. I mean, I'm looking at this final stage at Columbia and seeing some of the local riders who were able to stay in that front group with Carapaz and Bernal just killing themselves and thinking to myself, if I were a Colombian rider, an aspiring Colombian pro, like that is what I want. I want to be able to train for that specific moment to throw myself, to be able to test myself in a big summit finish with these guys from the Tour de France and to be able to get identified. So I'm looking at the results sheet, you know, uh, Hernan Ricardo Aguirre, Diego Andres Camargo. I mean, I'm probably butchering these names, but you got to <laughs> okay. figure these guys from the Colombia Tierra de Atletas team, Team so Medellin, are like targeting this thing the entire year for the opportunity to get seen. And that's what this race also represents for this country and this whole cycling culture. Yeah, so the, the Tierra Atletas, the Colombia Tierra Atletas, they're kind of uh, the remnants of what used to be the Colombian strongman, the Coldeporte strongman team, which is where Carapaz came from, where Caicedo came from. And so you had Diego Camargo, you had Hernán Aguirre, but also Miguel Flores, who was racing with Androni, the Sub-23 guy. I mean, he was right there in there in the mix in the final climb attacking. He did, he had an amazing race. And so, you know, what's what you see when you go to Colombia, is that, yeah, they have all these stars like Higita coming up and Uran and, and Carapa, I mean, uh, rather Bernal and, and Nairo, but there's 20 more behind them that are just, you know, coming up and just as strong. And so it's amazing to see, but you're there in this, you know, in the Boyacá region and everybody's on the bike, everybody's out training and it's high altitude. It's these crazy climbs and there's, you know, more and more kids. There could be double the amount that we see right now in the world tour. That's just how fantastic this place is and so and a race like this is another thing that I talked to the Federation about and was inquiring about is what are their thoughts about keeping the race at the level that it is like a 2.1 versus going to the world tour like California did and you know we talked about the impact that it had on California for these teams like like that we're talking about and they said for for now they have no interest in going up to the world tour mainly not just because of the cost that it, that it, it entails but also because they want to make sure that these teams like EPM these teams like Orgoya Paisa um that have long histories of creating top talent, that they still have the opportunity like Team Medellin to be in the mix and to get the experience to race against these world champions um, on their, you know, to get that experience moving forward and hopefully to be seen to get those opportunities to race in Europe. I mean, that's really smart. 
I think that is maybe it's learning from the mistakes of the Tour of California and seeing what happened to that event and North American cycling after it became World Tour and Conti teams no longer had invites and realizing that, you know, one of the goals of these big national races should be to be a springboard and a talent identification zone for World Tour teams to look at the up and coming talent because, you know, I remember those days back in February, you know, Tour of California being in February and that was the that was my favorite storyline of the race every year which was which is the north american who's the american or canadian rider who's going to like really stand out catch the eye of someone and you see how that fits into a development pipeline of you know junior development u23 get an opportunity to race on a big national stage and hopefully punch your ticket and like that's what tour columbia now represents for not just columbia but all of south america i mean jonathan caicedo he's following in the footsteps of uh, carapaz another ecuadorian rider you saw a number of riders from you know other south american nations i mean primarily columbia but other south american nations really looking at this race i know you've done a lot of reporting around central american cycling too i mean what mm-hmm. um what's the interest in trying to get to this race from teams from uh, Costa Rica and Mexico and uh, other Central American nations? Well, so we, we had a, the Canals team from Mexico there. Um, they, they had just signed a U23 uh, Colombian on their, their squad. So, they, I mean, there's definitely interest. It's the biggest it's the biggest race. Yeah, we have San Juan, but Colombia is just on another level. And so we had a team from Brazil. We had the national team from Venezuela. And, okay, they didn't have the same material, the, the equipment and stuff. They were a little bit behind on that that sense. But they're, they had the opportunity to get that experience. And we did see a few, you know, good performances. Ecuador, you know, I talked to which well, we'll see with the article coming up with Garapaz, you know, there's still some work to be done in Ecuador, so for now, the the riders still need to come through Colombia if they want to get to Europe, Um, but there's plenty of opportunities to do that, I mean, it's not just the tour of uh, Colombia, it's it's a wealth of Colombia, it's the Clásica RCN, you know, there's there's so many other other opportunities for them, but for this race in particular, that was really neat to see the, the different riders taking those opportunities and making the most of them um, to shine so that they could be hopefully noticed by bigger teams. So if on one end of the spectrum, we have like a world tour team, Team Ineos with big stars of the sport and an army of staffer and a bus and tents and all that stuff. How would you describe some of the local teams on the lower end of the budget and professional spectrum that um, came to this race? What type of setups were you seeing with some of these, these smaller teams? So I spoke to the the Venezuelan uh, national team, and they had they had a few sponsored bikes, but most of them were used bikes, used equipment. You know, they didn't have an extra bike, so if they crashed or something, you know, they were just out of luck. Um, and it was obvious, of course, as you probably guessed, on the team time trial. You know, you you get the World Tour teams, and they've got the TT helmets with a arrow, you know, glass frame and everything, and then the the bikes. Yeah, they were all on road bikes but um like rally had special aero road bikes that were really cool um that i'm sure helped them a great deal get you know get to fourth on that first stage but you know seeing ecuador for example you know it was kind of like 
you know, uh, mix and match helmets, what they could find, what they had available to them. And they just did the best that they could. Um, so it was, it was, you definitely saw the uh, imbalance there. Um, but still, you know, in the end, it's getting that, it's getting that opportunity, uh, to race and feel what, what it's like racing a TTT, you know, mm-hmm. a team time trial on that level. So a, a lot of their faces, you could tell they were just, whoa, overwhelmed, you know, that first day, but they settled in and, and talking to them, they were just really, really excited for the opportunity to be there. Big story coming out of this race is the success of EF Pro Cycling. Um, the American team, as you know, Cannondale and Garmin, a lot of times we would joke at the old Tour of California that they were going to find a way to finish second to like, you know, uh, grab second place from the clutches of victory. I think they were second there like five or six times. Um, no second place for them here. They kicked butt. They won three <laughs> stages, including the team time trial, and they swept the final podium with Higita winning, uh, Danny Martinez second, and Jonathan Caicedo, who was the first leader of the race, finishing third. I mean, this is amazing. They bumped Egan Bernal <clears throat> into second place. Um, what can you say about the way this team rode throughout the week? They came to win. I mean, man, coming out of the Colombian National Championships, I mean, they they got both the time trial champion with Denny Martinez defending his title, and then Higita uh, overtaking Bernal. Okay, Bernal crashed in in the final as well as uh, Ivan Ivan Sosa. He broke his thumb and was showing me his uh, stitches and stuff, so he's on the mend. But but they definitely came prepared and they were ready to win, and and it was very impressive to watch. And I think Higita is one of those guys that. He's going to be another Bernal. I mean, he's just crazy, crazy good. And he's got, he's super intelligent media. You know, when he, he spoke to the media every single day, they had him in the press conference and it was just very impressive to hear him speak and how he was thinking about the race and, and working within the team. So I'm really excited to see what we're going to see from him this season. I am too. You know, I sat down with Jonathan Vodder, CEO of the team uh, back in January to talk about the 2020 goals. And he was pretty bullish, you know, Hey, we, we think we we're, we're throwing all our chips in at the Tour de France. You know, we think we can, this is the year we can finally do well at the Tour de France. We're going to have multiple leaders. I don't know what it's going to look like. We don't have the details ironed out, yada, yada, yada. But Tour de France, multiple leaders was sort of the, you know, the the party line he was giving me. And uh, there was part of me that was a little skeptical. I mean, that team was second with Uran a few years ago. But other than that, has really struggled at the Tour de France. And, you know, I think that JV has found his Tour de France squad. I mean, if you like, <laughs> look no further than what happened in Colombia, because the Tour this year, they, there's not a lot of time trialing. There's a lot of climbing. There's that punchy uphill time trial. There's punchy stages, summit finishes. And it's the terrain that really could cater to a Higita or a Martinez, maybe even a Caicedo, guys who can grab a couple seconds here, a couple seconds there and really work together as a team. So, I mean, is that a guarantee they're going to win the Tour de France or even do well? No. But I think this race, in my mind, might be a, a good dress rehearsal for what they could accomplish at the Tour, especially having three, maybe even four leaders if uh, if Uran is fit. So Higita compares himself to Alaphilippe. He says he looked up to him. He's like, I think Alaphilippe has is, is the writer that I looked up to the most that has 
characteristics of the way I ride, the way I raise the most. And so he's, he's, he sees himself, he's like, well, you know, I don't know whether that's a Tour de France because a lot of questions were, okay, are you going to focus on classics or are you going to focus on the Grand Tours? And he's not sure yet. But I'm sure uh, Mr. Vodders is definitely looking at these results and saying, okay, where can we stick him in? And especially after his performance at the Vuelta last season, you know, the, every challenge that they've thrown at this kid, he's overcome, you know, and he's really performed when they've needed him to. So I'm excited to see what happens. You know, Uran is coming back. He's still not quite there. You know, he's still recovering a little bit. He's still a little bit, uh, Vodders was saying, he's still kind of shifting a little to the side, still um, working on physio and things like that. So I'm not sure where he's going to be come July, although he does, his focus is a tour and he's working really hard to get there. But what what is the team going to look like? Well, well, we'll just have to, have to wait and see, but for sure they have options. <laughs> I say though, I think we, we haven't seen what he, the most of what he can do. So I'm really excited to see how they come together and what, what, what happens come July, come May, come the start of the tours to see who, who does what and where, where they're going to place them. Well, it was a thrilling race. Um, it was, you know, I suggest everyone go search around on YouTube, find some replays, especially that final day. I might post one in with the body text of this podcast because it's you know it was really fast hard legit aggressive bike racing um in front of huge crowds I, to be perfectly honest i mean we never you know i was at some of the first editions of the tour of california and there were big crowds but nothing nothing like this i mean just just enormous crowds uh, before i let you get out of here though rebecca you uh you mentioned rigoberto uran and so I, you know, a lot of us follow him on social media. He has this Mick Jagger thing going on. He's kind of this <laughs> rock star of Colombian cycling. Um, you got to see that up close. How would you describe Uran's personality in front of the Colombian crowds and how they respond to him? They joke that he could run for president, and I would not doubt it. I mean, he just eats it up. He loves it. He feeds off of it, and they they feed it right back to him. You know, they just – it's just massive. It's massive. I used to chase around, you know, Michael Jackson back in the day, and I could tell you the crowds this week were comparable. I mean, the, the pandemonium that is – that happens around him, around these writers, but, but him especially, you know, they probably had him on the podium every day just because he just draws that emotion and that passion out of the crowd. So it was, it was a fun, fun time. And it was really, I'm glad to see that he got to come back to this race as his first race. Cause mentally, I think that definitely gave him a boost. <laughs> is it like, is he a joker? Is he funny? Is it, he's good looking? Like, what is it? The, what is the je ne sais quoi that makes, um, Rigo Uran, this like, you know, this popular character. Oh, he, he's a big time joker, big time joker. And he always like, you know, kind of the, the Wivon, you know, t-shirts that he has, it's kind of like, you know, get off your butt and ride lazy, you know, kind of thing. And it's, it's, but it's not seen as offensive. It's, it's just funny to them and they love it, you know, but it's, it's the Antioquio side of the culture that he's coming from, you know, Boyaca, they're a little bit more reserved and humble and, and a little bit more quiet compared to, to Uran, but it's always a good time. It's always fun. I, I would say though, too, for anybody who wants to go to Colombia, any of the uh, Americans out there, don't don't even think twice. Just go, just go and experience it. Okay, France is really far. You know, go to Colombia first. <laughs> you won't be disappointed. Fill yourself with like arepas and you know the the juices and and all the good stuff that Colombia. The pasta is oh my god, amazing. You won't be disappointed, and you get to see some fantastic bike racing. Well, after reading your coverage this year, uh, sign me up for next year. Tour Colombia two point one. 
looks like a heck of a good time. Rebecca Reza, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thanks so much for your excellent reporting. Again, you can go to velnews.com, read all of Rebecca's reports and features from Tour Columbia 2.1. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to hear from Ian Boswell after this quick break. Uh, my next guest on the Velo News podcast is a guy who we've had interviews with from bike races before on the podcast, but never an official sit down. Uh, Ian Boswell, I'm sitting across from in the basement of some house in Boulder. Ian is in town for the Old Man Winter Rally bike race, which is a mixed surface gravel road, all sorts of fun stuff. And Ian, this is going to be your debut race as a gravel racer. Uh, that's correct, right? Um, yeah, I would say it is. Um, I've actually just picked up a S-Works hardtail mountain bike, so I'm, <laughs> I might be uh, changing bikes. Um, but yeah, you know, this is part of like the Wahoo Frontiers campaign, and we it's, it's a new it's a new project, and more so than coming up specifically for the race, we wanted to all get together. So the fact that this race just conveniently kind of aligned at the same time was perfect. And because the weather conditions, I'm sure it's going to be a race because we're, we're all competitive. But, um, you know, just being stuck inside with the snow today has definitely kind of changed our mindset. And like, it's kind of really, in a way, like brought us together. Like, hey, well, it's snowing. We're not going to get outside and ride. Let's spend some quality time together. Come on, Ian. You're from Vermont. You're from a cold northern territory where it's crisp out and your bike is going to get muddy. This should be like no problem for you. Well, I'm not the weather. I'm not complaining about the weather at all. Um, I love snow. I just wish I had my fat bike. <laughs> yeah, I uh, actually was down in Atlanta um, earlier this week for a couple of days, and that was the first time I'd ridden my gravel bike outside since mid December. Um, I've been on my fat bike a lot, so mm -hmm. I've been doing you know, I've done a couple four hour rides on my fat boy. But other than that, it's been all either work inside on the kicker or you know, I've been working as well. So. Um, Definitely not as fit as I was 12 months ago this time, but no, I'm looking forward to, to the event this week. And it'll be fun to, you know, just to kind of see where everyone's at. And, you know, for me personally, really just see what these events are all about because I've heard like so much about them. And I've, like I said, I've been to a couple events, um, but never really with the focus of this is, you know, kind of my career now. And they've all been like, you know, at the end of the season or my wife and I organize a, a Fondo gravel event, but it's not a race at all. Um, so there's long rest stops and, you know, spending time here with, you know, guys like Pete and Amity and Colin, like learning about the gravel world is, there's a lot more to it than I thought. It's not just like, oh, cool. Here's a bike that has knobby tires. Like here's 200 miles. It's like, there's a lot more technical side of it as far as, you know, tires and pressure, um, you know, pit zones and all this around Kansas. And I was like, cool. Like I, I can just fly out there by myself and, you know, race 200 miles. And that is not the case. Um, Pete said even last year, he was like getting left behind in in the feed zones um he referred to him as like a pit stop not a feed zone um which reminds me more of nascar mm -hmm. than it does of, it uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> than like a, a charity ride or you know a casual fondo well this is exciting ian you are the latest uh pro road racer to launch your own gravel career um those listeners who have been reading the site have un you know undoubtedly seen our coverage around gravel this year with riders like tj eisenhart and peter stetna um, switching from road to gravel. And, you know, around that time, I started to hear the rumblings and the buzzings that maybe Ian Boswell was going to do the same because you um, were racing for Katusha Alpison 
And then, you know, there wasn't any news about whether you were signing with the team again as it became the Israel Startup Nation team, if you were going to sign for a different team. You know, towards the end of the year, I always have my eyes on the American World Tour pros to see if they're going to stay with their team or go someplace else. Um, as it turns out, during this period, you were doing some pretty heavy soul searching. Um, we had an interview on the site with you about your decision to go to Gravel, but I wanted to open that up to you here. I mean, for those listeners who didn't read that story, take us through this decision uh, to switch from world tour racing to gravel. I mean, you're 28 years old. I think that there's a lot of people who would look at you and say you're still very much in your prime as a professional athlete. Um, take us through to the decision to go to gravel. Yeah, well... You know, as you kind of laid out in the article that was done on Velo News back in, I guess, mid-January, um, you know, I started a crash last March, um, which ended my season. So that allowed me or gave me this opportunity to not, well, I couldn't race my bike for the rest of the year. Um, and without that time away, I never would have probably walked away from road racing, but it kind of allowed me to like evaluate, you know, kind of where I am in my life. Um and this gravel thing, you know, has kind of been there and it's been the corner of my eye. And I looked at doing some events last year, but Katusha Alpacin at the time wasn't interested in, in having me participate in, in those races. Um, and there was times when I, I've definitely thought like, all right, well, I'm never going to race a bike competitively again. You know, maybe I'll get fit when I'm, you know, a master or something. But, um, you know, I considered like, well, what am I going to do next? Am I going to go back to school? Am I going to, you know... I don't know, not drive trucks, but some, you know, something pretty simple in Vermont because, you know, the lifestyle there is definitely different than the job opportunities, I guess, are less than they would be in a place like Boulder or California. Um, but I really realized how much I love riding my bike and having so much, have like having that temporarily taken away from me and like how much joy and like, you know, positivity that brings to my life and also just like mental stability. And I've, you know, I won't lie, like I've, the crash and you know the head trauma definitely has emotionally changed my like brain chemistry and just my you know general mood in ways um and getting back to like cycling has been the most like the most rewarding and the best feeling i can get you know and the relief from you know stress and pain and you know i'm gonna say depression but you know just like negative thoughts um and my kind of route in order to do that was to enter the the gravel racing um now that it's all coming coming up, the season's coming up, I'm, to be honest, I'm a bit like scared because it's way different than I had anticipated it being. Um, you know, with social media now, you can follow pretty much everyone. And I was like, oh, cool. It's like January. Like now we're in mid-February and like, you know, I've been riding my bike a fair bit, but like people are taking this really serious. But the beauty of this is that there's so much more to it than just racing. You know, and Pete, for example, has been very adamant that he's here to race and he's here to win and like performance is his number one objective. Um, <clears throat> and while I would love to be competitive, um, at certain events, you know, I, st I haven't raced in a pack since my crash. So I don't know how that's going to feel. Like I've been much more cautious riding a bike, like very tentative and like, you know, just like not taking risks. Um, so how does that look once I'm in a Peloton or, you know, going 25 miles an hour on a gravel road and you can't see ahead of you. I don't know how that's going to feel right now. Um, but yeah, give it a shot. Why did you feel that road racing was not going to be open for you? Why did you feel that it, a world tour career or a career in the continental 
um, UCI continental level wasn't going to be there for you? I don't think, I mean, I think there was, there's a multiple factors, I guess, because, you know, one was just the risk factor of it and knowing that you, the pressure to perform in road, I mean, road cycling is about performance almost exclusively. I mean, the stories told behind the scenes are, they pop up, but it's, you know, from the team management perspective, you know, performance is the ultimate goal. So that means you have to take those risks. And if you're not willing to, then they can find someone else who, who is willing to take that. Um, and I did that for, you know, the last 15 years of my life and never really questioned it. Um, and there's people out there obviously today racing and, you know, willing to take that risk and credit to them. That's, it's an awesome career. And, you know, I, I miss that the free time you have as a pro road rider, because you have a lot of, you have a lot of free time, which is awesome. Um, you work hard, but there's a lot of free time. And then, you know, just being home more like my wife and I got married in, in May, you know, I wanted to spend more time at home. I was in 2018. I didn't, I wasn't at our home in Vermont for 10 months straight. And part of that was my choice. You know, I could have come back at certain times, but I felt like I knew what I needed to do to be prepared for the races I wanted to do well in. And I didn't feel like going back to that level, not committing a hundred percent of what I felt was, was necessary to perform at that level. Um, and I just didn't want to go back and, you know, get halfway through 2020 or get through this year and think, Oh, I actually should have just stopped. Um, for the moment, I have no regrets. You know, I'm, you know, I see, I'm watching races on TV and I still really admire road racing. I love road racing, but it's just for whatever reason, you know, I don't want to say I outgrew it, but the desire to go through that process just kind of escaped me through, through that time away from the sport. As excited as I was to read about you going to gravel and to read about Pete going to gravel and seeing this awesome and interesting new racing format attracting marquee riders as a fan of the sport there was i gotta admit there was part of me that was a little bummed because i've always tried you know i've always followed the progress of americans in the world tour and like i've been one of those american cycling fans who like i'd love to see an american you know world tour stage winner or grand tour winner and anytime there's a really talented and really accomplished road racer who's doing really well like I follow them and I have these ambitions, mental, little mental ambitions. This is a fan, not yeah. even as a journalist. And I remember interviewing you at the top of Mount Baldy in 2017 when you were still with Sky and like you were doing really well and getting this opportunity to lead the team. And there was part of me that was like, ah, I, you know, I can't wait to follow this guy's trajectory in the sport. And so as excited as I am to see you going to gravel, I mean, there is part of me that just as a fan and someone who yeah. follows the sport was a little bummed to see you um, – you know, giving up, giving up the world yeah. tour. Yeah. And, and, and in ways, you know, like I actually just did my first VO2 max test ever today, um, which is ironic because I've been racing purely for performance for the last 15 years of my life. And now I'm largely racing for fun, but I just did a VO2 max test. Um, but you know, it's, I, I don't, like I said, I don't, I feel like I accomplished a lot in the sport and, you know, I, I've seen like articles and comments and people like, Oh, like, you know, another failed American, you know, didn't reach their potential. And he's like, he was touted as the next room. I was like, who, I didn't say that. I didn't say I was the next room. Someone else did. Um, you know, I guess I can personally, like, I really enjoyed my time as a road rider and I don't feel like I'm walking away with any regrets towards, you know, the sport or to, you know, what I did or didn't accomplish. Um, you know, I would have loved to, have won the tour de France. Like that would have been a dream come true. Um, but I wasn't, whether it was, you know, physical, mental, you know, commitment, 
that wasn't my my level and i think personally because i've like come to terms with that like what level i was able to achieve then you know i can walk away with you know with only good kind of memories and experience i don't you know there's a bunch of good young americans coming up um you know Sepp Kuss is an incredibly talented rider. He, I did not break his VO2 record at the, at the training facility today. Um, so he's definitely potentially has more talent than I had. So maybe he can, maybe he can be the next American grand tour winner. Looking at your career in world tour racing and take the head injury out of it. Um, what advice would you have for young Americans coming up in road racing who are talented, who have ambitions on the international stage? Um, just, looking at your own pathway through the sport, the successes you had, the mistakes you had, the lessons you learned, what are some things, some pieces of wisdom that you would pass along to young American road racers? Well, it's funny, um, looking at like the data from the test I just did, I was speaking with Neil Henderson afterwards and we were just talking like, I had seen the highest heart rate today since I've seen, since I was, I don't know, like 18 or something. Um, and he pr- I kind of replayed, you know, why this, why that was. And he said, well, probably like when I was racing at the world tour level, I was probably over training. Um, and I see that now, not to say that it was a huge factor in my performance, but you get really stuck into this bubble of what you think you should be doing or what works for you, even though you may know better. Um, so that, I mean, I, I would just say like every once in a while, like take a step back and like evaluate what, what you are doing and how you're doing it and listen to advice from those around you because it becomes very easy to, to be ice to isolate yourself from from advice um and for any young you know north american rider trying to make it in europe i would say you definitely my perspective is you need to get settled in europe and that's a huge that makes life so much easier um you know stetna might say differently because he kind of mastered going back and forth um you know i really made nice my home and had friends there and enjoyed living there and you know that was that was my comfortable place to perform and in many ways i saw my life in France as like my office. Like when I went to Europe, like I was there to work and I was there for, you know, effectively for one goal. And that was to, to be the best road cyclist I could be. Here's my last road cycling question for you. And we can go back to gravel after this. Um, you came up, um, I would say somewhat outside of the guise of development system and USA cycling and, you know, world championship teams and national teams. And, you know, you had this, I wouldn't say, unorthodox pathway in the sport, but it felt like you did a lot of, you accomplished a lot on the sport on your own without um, the benefit of national federation, like, you know, doing a lot to you. How do you think that shaped your progression in, in road cycling? Yeah. I don't know if that's entirely true. Cause I did do a fair bit with USA cycling, okay. um, but I definitely kind of went in and out of their program. Um, I wasn't like consistently in it, like some riders, uh, and part of that was just growing up in Oregon and, you know, we weren't even part of USA cycling. So like the minute I had to use junior gears, I'm like this, what the heck, this sucks. <laughs> you know, like, I have a 55 tooth on my, you know, chain ring on my TT bike back home. Um, but I think in a lot of ways that made me very kind of like independent and taught me to like look after myself, which, you know, eventually, you know, suited me pretty well to making that transition to Europe and made that easier because to a degree I was somewhat, you know, responsible for myself and my actions um, you know, and that was very apparent when I went to, to team sky in 2013, like those British riders had kind of been, you know, someone had been holding their hands since they were 15. So when they stepped out of that environment, it was really difficult for them. You've seen that with several riders that, you know, several British riders who have stepped out of that program. Um, so I think just being like 
it made me extremely adaptable, you know, kind of doing things, not, I don't want to say my way, but not being afraid to kind of go out on the limb and do things in the way that I saw fit. I lied. One more road bike question. Um, what was your, you know, looking back on a road career, what was your best day racing a road bike? Um, my best day, I don't know, you know, that stage at the top of Baldy actually may have been up there because I had really struggled in the world tour the two years prior to that. And that was you know, my third year of my first contract at Sky. It was the last year of my contract and it was, there was a lot riding on, on that season and I'd worked really hard that off season. And that was kind of the first, one of the first big results I had that, um, Rod Ellen, Ellensworth, the, who was a general manager now he's at Bahrain, um, came up to me and was like, well, we're going to have to re resign. Well, we're not going to have to resign you, but like, we're going to, we're going to offer you another contract because you're performing at the level we expect, expected of you. Um, and that kind of just like snowballed into having a pretty good season. Um, I guess that was 2015. I'm thinking, like I guess I had two decent results on top of Baldy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I never won a race. I guess, you know, Pete and I were talking about this this morning. We both won team time trials. Um, so I won a team time trial at the 2016 Vuelta. And that was up there as well. You know, I, some people don't count that as a win, but I was like, you know, I was part of that team and I have a little Tisa watch from that stage that, that we won. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, there's been a lot of highlights in my career and, you know, those are kind of like the bigger races. But even I look back to like, you know, winning something like Nevada city when I was, you know, I guess 18 with Bissell pro cycling. Um, you know, those are like kind of, those are just really good memories. Mm -hmm. So, as we talk about the gravel cycling space and, and, and listeners, you know, you heard me talking to this, talking to TJ Eisenhardt about this. And it seems like every gravel <laughs> racer is trying to, I would say, to a certain degree, carve out a persona for themselves in this scene. You know, TJ is all about art. He's not racing to win. He's about art. Pete is racing to win. That's his thing. Yeah. He's really trying to race to win. What are you trying to do? What is the Ian Boswell persona in gravel how do we view you and what you're trying to do in gravel um maybe i could be the working man um it wasn't it wasn't really portrayed that well i guess when i did the article with bella news um but i actually have a full-time job with wahoo mm -hmm. so i'm an employee of of wahoo um so learning that life training balance has been you know pretty it's been a big life change you know to like be working and training um i've really enjoyed it because i'm like wow like this is this is like the real world which i have not been living in since i guess i've never really lived in i've been always you know had more or less all day to ride my bike um you know so i I'd still like i said love to be competitive i love to you know kind of come into form for those kind of those key events mid-season um but at the same time i really don't know how I will perform at those. Um, I don't know. You know, I think just like striking up this balance of like being strong, being competitive, but really having fun while doing it. And yeah. So how would I define my, my persona? I guess I'd like to be approachable and I'd love to like, just, I don't want to say connect with people, but I'd love to, you know, just experience this all with, you know, with everyone else out there. Because one thing I really missed road racing, you know, was that connection with, with fans and with riders because you're so, you know, somewhat sheltered by the team bus and barriers and, and all that. Um, and I've always been a largely or, you know, pretty social individual. Um, so that social aspect has been great. It's also kept me extremely busy the last couple of months trying to manage a job training and just like communicating with people. 
Um, but I try to always make time for that. And what's your job? What's your full-time job? Well, so I'm an ambassador of Wahoo. So I've been, um, I've been working, you know, kind of planning events like what we have here in Boulder with the Wahoo Frontiers campaign. You know, we're, I'm starting my podcast again mm-hmm. um, with Wahoo. And I'm also, you know, we're doing these documentary kind of films. So we did the one in, in Vermont that came out in the middle of January. And then also starting to work with the world tour teams and kind of just facilitate those relationships between the, you know, the brand and, and the world tour teams, because I have a lot of, you know, good friends in the world tour still. And as a former world tour athlete, I also kind of understand what athletes are willing to do and what they're not willing to do. Um, so just making sure that that's like as positive as a relationship as possible. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's very much evolving all the time. And sometimes I feel like, wow, this is like a lot of work. And other times I'm like, wow, this is like, I have like the dream job of gravel. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, I feel like I'm in a very fortunate place. There's times when I look at, you know, people like Pete and Colin, they're in California for, you know, all of goodness. They're there all of like, you know, January training. And I was in Vermont working. And before coming here, I was in Atlanta for global sales meetings for three days. Um, and I'll tell you what, like sitting through meetings for three days straight is definitely harder than doing a three day training block. Um, so it's just given me a lot of appreciation for people who balance that balanced life, you know, who can work a full-time job, train, have kids. I don't have kids yet. I don't, we don't have pets or animals and I'm still like, wow, this is challenging. Um, but people do it. And that's, it gives me more admiration for people who can actually make that happen and still be competitive in some of these events. I mean, that's always the, an interesting transition to me when I talk about cyclists, when they do retire, which is about, yeah, moving on to a different job, Thinking on different skills, having a different schedule. I mean, as a professional cyclist, so much of your life is is being selfish, is saying, you know, I, I got to put my legs up and rest. I know that you're having a birthday party, but that corresponds with training. I want to have that beer and be social, yeah. but that corresponds with something that, you know, is very sp- specific to my life as a, as a pro cyclist. I remember having this conversation with Alison Dunlap once when she was retiring and she was like, I'm so looking forward to just not being selfish anymore, not saying no to invitations and events and things yeah. that normal people do. And I mean, it sounds like the first step for you to that is like having to deal with like spreadsheets and emails and like the boring minutia yeah. That, yeah, pe- most, uh, <laughs> that most of us deal with in our regular jobs. Yeah. There's been a, you know, a tech adaptation probably more than anything because before it's been like emails, text messages or WhatsApp. And now there's all these like, you know, Asana and like Google calendars. Yeah. And I'm like, my wife's like, hey, can you share your Google calendar with me? I'm like, I tried a couple times, but I can't figure it out. Um, but I'm learning. And that's been actually really positive because it is, you know, I'm kind of almost to a degree getting caught up on the modern world. Modern world. Um, you know, I can walk you through a power, you know, uh, you know, a tr- a, I guess a power profile of a stage and give you a pretty in-depth, you know, analysis. But I cannot walk you through a PowerPoint presentation or an Excel sheet. <laughs> I'm like very much typing things out. Um very slowly, but Wahoo has been great because they've been extremely patient with me and they understand that this is also a big transition for an athlete Mm -hmm. because you, like you said, you come from a world where you're your own boss, you work your own hours, more or less, you know, you you leave for training based off when you wake up and the weather. Um, and all of a sudden you're not always in control of all those things anymore. You're kind of on someone else's time. So they've been incredibly flexible, which has been great. Do you, so then do you still consider yourself a professional athlete? Or are you retired? I am retired. I actually just submitted my retirement form to USADA the other day, which was, which is great. I mean, 
I'm happy to not be filling up that form anymore. Um, also happy to announce I had no positive tests in my Woo-hoo! seven years in the world. I guess I may, may have been on the testing pool at Livestrong as well. Um, but that was actually a big step for me because I've done, you know, for the last seven or eight years of my life, I've been filling out this damn, you know, form where I'm at every single hour of, or an hour of every single day. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, like most people don't do that. Like this isn't normal. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually came home from a training ride um, last week at some point and yeah, you saw it was there to collect, collect my urine. And that's normal for, that's been the normal, you know, kind of routine for me, but that's not really normal for most people in any other walk of life. Well, I think that's an interesting de- delineation, Ian, because I think that, um, yeah, like you said in the story we've done on the website, I think a lot of people had maybe thought, okay, well, you are, you know, this pro roadie switching to gravel and you're going to be racing. But, um, you know, having the mindset of thinking of yourself as a retired cyclist who is still racing and still competitive, but has a full-time job. In my mind, I see that as a bit different than someone who's like, I am still a full-time cyclist. I'm trying to win these races and, and you know, and have a performance focused attitude towards gravel races. Um, do you see it that way? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I would love to win if that you know happens. Fantastic. But that's not the overarching goal of this project is to win. I mean, look at my people on the podcast can't see this, but look at those legs. Those wow, are hairy. those are hairy legs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't shaved since March. Um, and I'm probably not going to shave. I told Pete if he shaved his mustache, I would shave my legs. And I don't think he's going to get rid of his mustache. So I don't think I'm going to be shaving my legs. Well, Ian, I very much enjoyed following you through your road career. And I will always remember that uh, result on Baldy 2017. Um, you had a hell of a career. And I really appreciate you stopping in. Um, where can we listen to your podcast? Where we can where can we find your media? So... Breakfast with Boz will be coming out at the end of February. I'm not sure when this podcast is coming out. Um, but all the content can be found at wahoofitness.com forward slash frontiers. Both the, the videos and the podcast. All right. Thanks a lot, Ian. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Fred.